A reading from God's holy word today comes from Exodus, the 33rd chapter. If um, you're new with us this morning, welcome. We're glad that you're here. We're in the midst of a series in the book of Exodus, and today are, well, arguably at one of the more um, complex of the passages of Scripture that we find in the book of of Exodus, I was, I was telling to, to Ben right before the service that the, the first service, I felt like they were drinking a little from the fire hydrant this morning. I'm going to try to have mercy on you as we, as we start out. But I was reminded just as we were singing a second ago of something my, my fourth grade teacher would say, Miss Kaminish. Anybody know Miss Kaminish in here? No, probably. Don't tell her, you know, I'm going to say this. No. She was a marvelous teacher. She, um, she helped me learn fractions, of which is a big deal. Like, you use it a lot in, in, in life, but I was terrible at fractions. And, and she would say to the class very regularly, now, class, we need to put our, our thinking cap on, right? Do, you, do teachers still do that? They still say that? They, they don't, clearly not. You, you, none of you are helping me at all. You're just looking at me like... You had a very strange upbringing, is what I'm, what I'm gathering from your looks. Um, put your thinking cap on, meaning to say, we're going to, we've got some work ahead of us. We, we need to get you in the mode of, of thinking. Well, uh, this is me telling you to get your thinking cap on. This is a, this is a thinker of, of a text, Exodus uh, chapter 33. It's, it's here just previous to Exodus 32, where we have the golden calf Incident, the, the incident where the people of Israel fashioned for themselves an idol and, uh, and worshipped it. And uh, just as we were alluding to just a little bit earlier, now we're moving into Exodus 33 and there's a little bit of a question of like, well, what happens now? There was a judgment that came from the Lord. 3,000 were, were killed because of that. A plague descended on, on Israel. That's where we left them at the end of Exodus 32. Where are we going to go from, from here? Has the, will the Lord, so to speak, throw in the towel on the people of Israel? He's done so much for them. Will, will this be the end of the road? And there's glimmers in the, the beginning of Exodus 33 that... No good things are, are happening. It looks like we're moving forward. But then there's this sort of atomic bomb that goes off in the text where the Lord says, I'm not going to go with you. And, and, it, and it hits exactly as it ought to hit the soul of the people of Israel. They are, they are undone by it. And the rest of the text is, is Moses really wrestling. Wrestling with the Lord in faith rehearsing the truth of his covenant promises and saying, we, we feel, we believe, I believe, there's no use in going to the promised land without you, the Lord, going with us. And, and the intercession of Moses in this text is what we want to spend the bulk of our time really looking at because he teaches us how to pray. He teaches us how to pray. He teaches us what's important in prayer. He, he teaches us that we need the presence of God more than anything else. So I want you to have that rattling around in your heart as we enter into the reading of the text today from Exodus 33. We'll pick up the reading in verse 1 and we'll read to the end of the chapter. This is God's Word. 
The Lord said to Moses, depart. Go up from here, you and the people whom you have brought up out of the land of Egypt, to the land of which I swore to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, saying, to your offspring I will give it. I will send an angel before you, and I will drive out the Canaanites, the Amorites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Go up to the land flowing with milk and honey, but I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way. For you are a stiff-necked people. When the people heard this disastrous word, they mourned, and no one put on his ornaments. For the Lord had said to Moses, Say to the people of Israel, You are a stiff-necked people. If for a single moment I should go up among you, I would consume you. So now take off your ornaments that I may know what to do with you. Therefore the people of Israel stripped themselves of their ornaments from Mount Horeb onward. Now Moses used to take the tent and pitch it outside the camp, far off from the camp, and he called it the tent of meeting. And everyone who sought the Lord would go out to the tent of meeting, which was outside the camp. And whenever Moses went out to the tent, all the people would rise up. Each would stand at his tent door and watch Moses until he had gone into the tent. And then when Moses entered the tent, the pillar of cloud would descend and stand at the entrance of the tent, and the Lord would speak with Moses. And when all the people saw the pillar of cloud standing at the entrance of the tent, all the people would rise up and worship, each at his tent door. Thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. When Moses turned again into the camp, his assistant Joshua, the son of Nun, a young man, would not depart from the tent. Moses said to the Lord, see, you say to me, bring up this people, but you have not let me know whom you will send with me. Yet you have said, I know you by name. You have also found favor in my sight. Now, therefore, if I have found favor in your sight, please show me. Now your ways, that I may know you in order to find favor in your sight. Consider too, this nation is your people. And he said, my presence will go with you, and I will give you rest. And he said to him, if your presence will not go with me, do not bring us up from here. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? Is it not in your going with us that we are distinct, I and your people, from every other people on the face of the earth? And the Lord said to Moses, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Moses said, please show me your glory. And he said, I will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim before you my name, the Lord. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and I will show mercy on whom I will show mercy. 
But he said, you cannot see my face, for man shall not see my face and live. And the Lord said, behold, there is a place by me where you shall stand on the rock. And while my glory passes by, I will put you in a cleft of the rock, and I will cover you with my hand until I have passed by. Then I will take away my hand, and you shall see my back, but my face shall not be seen. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our God will stand forever. Indeed, we believe that, O Father, that this word that you have spoken now thousands of years ago is a word that will stand. It's a word that even today, as we see, continues to preach. And we would pray that you would, by the Spirit, even now, preach a much better sermon than the one who has prepared this one. We would pray that the Spirit would come and illumine this text and its meaning to the heart of each and every one of us, that we might see you, that we might behold your glory. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. You know, everything started out so well at the beginning of Exodus 33. God is going to take His people, Israel, and He's going to do away with all of their enemies. He's going to lead them up to the land of Canaan. He's going to run off All of the Amorites, the Hivites, the Perizzites, the Hivites, the Jebusites, the Canaanites. He's going to run them them all off. And the people of Israel are going to take the land of of Canaan. How, How hopeful the beginning of this text is. Especially in light of where they've been in Genesis 32. And the judgment of the Lord that had fallen upon the camp. And then in verse 3 they hear... I will not go up among you, lest I consume you on the way, for you are a stiff-necked people. If you weren't with us last week, that language, stiff-necked people, for those of you who were here, you'll remember. It was language that was used to the people of Israel last week, and it really is a kind of play on words that we see in Exodus 32, it's that you, O people, created a cow, a golden cow. And you know what you're acting like? Well, you're acting like cow people. You're you're, you're acting in the way of the idol that you've made. You actually are being shaped in the likeness of your idol. There's a lot of theology right there, you know. You ever met those people who smell like money? You know what I'm talking about? You know what I'm talking about. As people smell like money, they smell like the thing that you know they've given their life to. Very real sense, God is making that kind of point here in the opening of Exodus 33 that you are a stiff necked people. And and at that moment, you, you know that the heart of the people of Israel must have fallen because, well, they hoped they were past Exodus 32. But God's pulling the thread of Exodus 32 into Exodus 33. He's letting them them know, I I know you. All the way 
Well, to your heart, I, I can see the kind of people you are. You're the kind of people who aren't just going to commit idolatry once. You're the kind of people who have idolatrous hearts. They're going to continue to sin against me. And the truth of the matter is, 3,000 were killed as a, as, a, as a sample, so to speak, judgment from me because of your lack of faithless, your faithfulness, your lack of it. He said, but now I am calling you further, but I see that there's nothing going to change. And the reality is, if you continue in the way that you continue and I stay with you, I can't even be with you, he's saying, a moment, and my righteous judgment will fall upon you. I will, I will literally consume you, he says here in, in the text. It's a, picture of, it's a picture of judgment. And so God is saying, it's just best I don't go with you. Now, you could hear that, I think, as a bit of a, a divine power move kind of power play of the Lord. You know, I have done all this stuff for you. And um, I've given you every reason to follow me. And I see how you treat me. And now I'm going to take my toys and I'm going to go home. I, I, I am not going to put up with this. I'm not going to stand for this uh, any, anymore. Uh, I'm the, the, the faucet is of blessing is cut off. I'm going home. You could, you could read it in that way. I would encourage you not to. That's not the spirit of our Lord. Hear it through, hear it through his covenant. He from before the foundation of the world has set this, this group apart, this nation apart. He's walking with them. He's revealing his grace to them. He's, he's rained manna from heaven and water from a rock. He's, he's wrenched them out of the slavery in Egypt. He has plans to plant them in the promised land. He's not even giving up on those plans. We see that he's going to follow through on what it is that, that he's promised. He loves this people, despite the fact that this people's love for him is well, very shallow, very weak and, and failing. He loves these people nonetheless. And he realizes that because of his nature, he is holy. He is righteous. He can't abide with sin. He can't wink at it. He can't sweep it under the rug. He can't act like it's not there. He, by virtue of his character, a character of holiness and justice and righteousness, must adjudicate and bring to wrath and judgment, pour out his wrath and judgment upon sin. He must do it. He can't not do it. And so, because of my love for you, because I don't want to destroy you, it's best I don't go with you. Now, I want you to, to, to actually understand God's position of love here. What does God want more than anything else with His people? He wants to be with them. He loves them. He wants to be with them. Who is Jesus? He is Emmanuel. He is God with us. It is God coming to chase us down. Do you know that's really what grace is? It's it's God chasing after us to draw us unto Himself. It's, it's God pursuing us by His grace to make us His own. God longs to be dwelling with His people. It's what He experienced with Adam and Eve so sweetly in the Garden of Eden before the fall, wasn't it? And through the pages of Scripture, each time you're turning a page of Scripture, what are you moving towards? The book of Revelation. And what is the book of Revelation about? It's about, it's about a new Jerusalem 
that's coming. A new place where God will dwell with His people with unhindered communion. That's where the whole of redemptive history is going. God is saying at this point, listen, I so love you that the thing for which I have designed the whole of the world, I will step back from in relationship for you just so I don't destroy you along the way. There's there's the love of God in the midst of this. He's 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 not crossing his arms and taking his toys. There's a sense of protection and care for his people knowing that they can't abide closely with his holiness. And you know what? This is really the conundrum. That's a really fancy word for a dilemma. There's a dilemma that's here in this text, and it's a a dilemma that runs through the Old Testament. How do an unholy people live in relationship with a holy God? And the answer, provisionally, at the beginning of Exodus 33 is, they don't. Which is why the people of Israel in this text, you notice their response? They break out in mourning. Literally, it's the language of a funeral. It is is the death of of what they have put all of their hopes and their dreams in. That God would would depart from them. That He would not go up with them as they go into the land. He's going to keep His promises. He's going to destroy their enemies. They're going to plant in the land. He's just not going to be there with them. There will be no tabernacle, you see. There will be no dwelling place. There will be no temple. No temple mount. God would not be in the midst of His people. He can't be in the midst of the people. What we've been driving towards in the whole of the book of Exodus is now apparently not going to happen. I'm not going to go up with you. And the people are undone by it. Even in the midst of the text, notice they're so undone that they're actually going to finally get rid of what has really been their biggest stumbling block up to now, and that is these ornaments. Did you notice that several times in the text? They're going to, they take off their ornaments in the midst of their grief, and then in verse 5 we're told that God tells them to strip off their ornaments so that He can figure out what it is that He's going to do with them. And you're thinking to yourself, ornaments, you know, like, I didn't know they celebrated Christmas already, right, in the Old Testament, right? They have their ornament box, they get out, they got their Christmas tree, their, no, not those kind of ornaments. No, this is the gold and the jewels and the, the riches that they got from Egypt. Remember, this was the problem in the previous chapter. It was those ornaments that they melted down that actually became, right, that magical golden calf that appeared out of the fire as Aaron spoke it. It was, that, it was that that had gotten them into trouble. It was, it was in other words, see the narrative. See, see, the, see the angle of the story, how the narrative is being told. It's the, it's the gifts of Egypt that are now haunting them on their journey to the promised land. It's, it's the people have come out of Egypt... But they're carrying, as it were, Egypt with them in their hearts as they go. And now as they are being told by the Lord to strip off their ornaments, they're giving up the precious treasures that they received out of Egypt. It's a display of their willingness, their commitment to be completely done with idolatry. We are completely done with idolatry. And then we're told in this text, as this crisis is, is swirling, that Moses, in verse 7, sets up a tent. 
Now, this is really shocking if you've been reading along with us in the book of Exodus because we don't know about this tent. I mean, this tent has is, is never appeared before in the text, and now it just pops up, no pun intended, just, just pops up in, in the text, and you think to yourself, so this is the tabernacle. No, it's not the tabernacle. No, it's not called the tabernacle. It's called the tent of meeting. Not, not called the tabernacle. It's different, different language that's even employed. We're going to see later in the book of Exodus, in fact, just a couple of weeks, that the tabernacle will be built, right? So there's going to be a, a tabernacle. We, we get through the dilemma of Exodus 33, but this is Moses here, and this is Moses' initiative. He needs a place from which he can commune with the Lord on the behalf of the people of Israel to mediate and to call down, as it were, that pillar of cloud from Mount Sinai to meet with him in prayer. And so he sets up this tent of meeting. And you notice he walks out to it, and it's, and it's, not, it's not close to the people, right? It's outside the camp. The text makes an emphasis of that. So we know it's not the tabernacle because the tabernacle was supposed to be where? In, in the middle of the camp, so that everybody could be close to it. Now, this is outside the camp, and you know why it's outside the camp. We don't want God consuming anybody because of His holiness. But Moses goes out there, and he enters into the tent, and what happens? The pillar of cloud shows up, and he meets with the Lord. In fact, the most beautiful description of intimacy is given to us here in the midst of the text, and we kind of almost stumble on it because it's so shocking, the description of it. Did you catch it? In verse 11, thus the Lord used to speak to Moses face to face as a man speaks to his friend. Oh, it's a beautiful, beautiful verse. But, but it's, a, it's a verse that I know that you're thinking, well, I have a lot of questions about that. I have a lot of questions about that. Like, like it says he, he speaks to the Lord face to face, and then later in the text, he can't see God's face and, and live. So, What's going on there? Well, I would love to chase that rabbit with you. You know I would love to chase that rabbit with you. And it would take as far afield uh, in being able to do so. But suffice it to say that the metaphorical language that's being used here in verse 11 is meant to describe the familiarity, the intimacy, and the closeness that Moses enjoyed with the Lord. But the way in which face is used later in the text has to do with the fullness of the glory of God being revealed um, toward Moses or towards any particular individual. And there's a different sense in which those words are, are being used. But, but we won't chase that. I want you to see that out of that description of intimacy, the Bible doesn't chase our theological questions. Instead, what it does is it displays for us the communion that Moses enjoyed. It displays for us the communion that Moses enjoys. And that's the bulk of the text, isn't it? Really from verses 7 to 17. If this text begins with a crisis, it's carried along towards the ultimate vision of glory by a prayerful negotiation. That's really what we see in this text is what I'm going to call a prayerful negotiation in verses 7 to 17. And this prayerful negotiation is a back and forth between Moses and the Lord. Notice there in verse 12. Notice verse 12. Moses said to the Lord, See, you say to me, Lord, you have said this to me. Bring up this people. That's what you've told me. But here's my rejoinder. Here's my question. Here's my concern. But you have not let me know whom you will send with me. 
You've told me now that you're not going to go with me. And I just want to be sure that if you leave me with these people, I've got enough resources. I've got support. Don't leave me out here with these complaining people, these idolatrous people. They're, they're going to they're kill me. They're, they're going to kill me. They, they're running you off, and they're going to kill me, these people. So do not leave me out here without the resources that I need. He wants to be able to fulfill his calling. You've told me to bring these people all the way in the land of Canaan, but I, I just don't have a lot of hope that we're going to get there without you. So who is it that you're going to bring with me? It's a concern with regards to calling. And, and you'd, you'd expect a response, but no, Moses is full here. He's got more to say. Notice verse 12. Yet you have said, so he's going back to God's words again. I know you by name and have found favor in my sight. His first question is about calling. How am I going to do what it is you've called me to do if you're not around? His second concern is with regards to his standing. You have told me that you know me by name and I have found favor in your, in your sight. Now, that word favor is actually the Old Testament word really for grace. I have a gracious field relationship with you. We are on good, we're on good terms, you and me. We're on the terms of grace. My relationship with you is not based on the perfection of my obedience. It is, it is, it is on your grace in relationship to me. And you know me by name. Not just that, you know, he knows everybody's name, right? Generally, God knows everybody's name. No, no, this is an intimate, personal knowing that's being described here. I know you. I, I love you. I've been, I've, been, I've been earmarked by your love as, as, as your representative from you to the people and from the people to you. And can you hear in that? A question, it's not in the text, but it's between the lines of the text. There's a question that's being lifted here from the heart of, of Moses. If, if there's really, I'm not sure any way we can get to the promised land in the way that we need to get to the promised land without you. And if I have found favor in your sight and you know me by name, then why don't you at least go with me? Do you hear that question? Now, I want you to just see for a minute. See, be careful. I don't want to give you too much here. I want you to see, though, for a minute, just how exemplary that prayer is. He says, you've said these things to me. Do you know you have a whole Bible of things that God has said to you? Like all kinds of promises and truths and stories. And, and pictures, all kinds of assurances that he's given to you. Why, why has he spoken so much to you? Why, why does he tell you these stories? Because he just he loves telling stories. He's like this great grandfather in the sky, and he just he just loves just waxing eloquently about stories. No, he wants you to know him, and he wants you to know him in such a way that you can say back to him the things that you know about him. Moses is doing that. You know that's really where our prayers become extremely rich and effective. I would say the prayers of a righteous man, right? That availeth much. What kind of prayers are those? Well, those are often the prayers that are so saturated in the word themselves that the language of God's word and promise is crafted and shaped and couched within the petitions that we say. 
Moses is doing that. He's giving God's word back to him. You've told me these things, and so I have something to ask of you because of who it is that I know that you are. Notice what he says. Show me now, verse 13, your ways, that I might really know you in order to find favor in your sight. Isn't that interesting? Now let me ask you, does Moses know, uh, know the Lord? It's not a true question. He, he does. He knows the Lord. He, he met him a long time ago at the burning bush. Do you remember that? Very long time, long time ago at the, at the burning bush. He's been up on the mountain for 40 days and 40 nights speaking with the Lord. You, you think Moses knows the Lord? I'm going to go out on a limb here. I think Moses knows the Lord better than anyone in his generation. And now he's come to a moment where the Lord is doing something that Moses does not understand. The Lord has said, I'm not going to go with you. And he says, well, Lord, I know your covenant. I know your promises. Even earlier in this text, you told me you're going to give the land that you promised to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. Like, I actually know that history. And you're not going to go with us? Your presence was at the heart of what you promised. I need to know your ways. This is, here, here Moses is saying, I want to understand how you think. I want to understand how you're making this decision so that if I understand your ways, I might really know you. I, isn't that just such a display of walk, a walk of faith right there? You know, there are some of you in here who have walked with the Lord for 30, 40, 50 years. You've walked, you've walked a long time with the Lord. You know the Lord, and don't you find that you need to know the Lord? No matter how long you know the Lord, you need to know the Lord. How many times has a turn taken in your life and you look at the, the unfolding of that turn and you go, what is the Lord doing here? Like, right? You thought you understood the sovereignty of God and then something crazy happened in your life and you thought, hmm, what do I think about the sovereignty of God now? I, I, I believe it. But boy, I experience it and now it's deepened within me in a way that it could not have happened otherwise. That's this moment for that's this moment for Moses. He's, I want to really know you. I want to really find favor in your sight. He's not questioning whether he's found favor in the sight of the Lord, but he wants more of the favor that he has. More of the grace that's already his. That's the walk of faith. It's an incredible prayer, isn't it? He's somewhat mystified by God, but he's not doubting him at this moment. He's exploring in the truth that he has of God more about God and who he is. I love this because this is the kind of faith we really want to see grow up among believers here at, here at Cornerstone. We, we want to be a people who are constantly hungry for knowing the Lord and seeing the most important part of knowledge in all of human history and under all of life is knowing the Lord. It's more important than anything. Listen, Moses could have, let, let's for a moment, again, i got to be careful, Let's for a moment think of a path that Moses could have taken. He could have taken the path that I think we often take. And that is, oh, so now you're not going to go with me. Wow. Um, I should take a class. I'm going to need a class. I'm going to need some training. I'm going to need some equipping. Do you have podcasts? 
Do you have a self-help section in Barnes & Noble that you could point me toward? Do you have something so that I can get these people from where they are to where, where they need to be? Do, do you feel all the like overwhelming anxiety? of that? Do you feel the stress of that? Do you feel the strain of that? Do you feel the, do you feel the, it's all on my shoulders? That would have been a path that he could have taken. I'm sure that that path was in some ways existing. He's a man like you and me. He's a fallen man in need of, in need of grace. Some of that would have been there, but what does he, what does he do? Instead of saying, oh, how can I do this without you? He said, there's no way I can do this without you. I need you. I need to know your ways. I need to know you. I was speaking at a marriage conference this weekend, and one of the, to one of the sessions, second session, and an older woman uh, from the congregation came up, and she just said, I really appreciate biblical wisdom and advice we've been given. She said, but most of all, I appreciate the fact that you have, you've told us about God today. Because when I was a young person in marriage, I just thought, I need to know all the things. I need to know perfectly how to love my husband. I need to know perfectly how to keep my house. I need to know perfectly how to take care of all of, all of the things. And, and it was exhausting. It was so exhausting and wearying. I carried it like a crushing weight. But if I had known God in those things and known the God behind all of those things, it would have made all the difference. Uh, you, you know, that's really such a huge lesson here, isn't it? That that's what Moses is pursuing. And isn't it interesting that God answers him? I say interesting because really don't we, so many times we don't believe God will answer. And we see God very clearly, and it's just, it's very matter of fact. Look at verse 14. Here's God's response. Moses, you know, waxes on, but here's God's response. My presence will go with you and I will give you rest. Thank you for giving back to me my promises. I now know that you know them. You know that's what's going on, don't you? You know, sometimes we will talk about, we'll remind God of his promises. And when we say things like that, that's a perfectly fine thing to say, but we need to understand what we're saying. God doesn't forget, right? It's impossible for God to forget. Um, but when we remind him of his promises, you know what is actually happening? We're reminded of his promises in the work of praying his promises back to him. And really the vitalization in the life that comes to us is part of the change that the Lord actually brings. But Moses, he's a good listener. It may not look like it in this text, but he really is. He says, my presence will go with you and I will give you rest. And then in verse 15, notice Moses' response. If your presence will not go with me, then do not bring us up from here. And you're like, hmm. Moses, turn up the hearing aid. Like, he just said to you, my presence is going to go with you. And Moses said, I know, I heard him. But he said it in the singular. If you look in the Hebrew, the you is singular. I will go with you. Okay, Moses, I know you by name. My favor is upon you. I will go with you. And, and Moses is in there going, hmm, this is going to be interesting because I'm going with them or they're going with me. And so if you're going to go with me, and they're going to go with me. We're going to have issues if you're only going with me, right? There's going to be something go wrong. Moses is processing this actually theologically. And he knows that there, there's an issue here. And, and, and so he actually had already seeded this. Did you notice this in verse 13? I skipped over it. 
He's not only said, you know, show me your ways that I might know you. He also said in verse 13, consider too this nation is your people. Oh, by the way, (laughs) I'm just going to lay that right there. Consider too that this nation is your people. And God said, I will go with you. And he says, yeah, well, consider, (laughs) I'm going to come back to this. Consider too, that's what Moses is doing in prayer. Consider too this your people. Because notice what he does in verses 15 and 16. For how shall it be known that I have found favor in your sight, I and your people? He's sly, isn't he, in this prayer? Moses has now lumped himself in with the people. Now, why has he done that? Because that's exactly his role. He is the mediator for God and his people. He's going to be going between God and his his people. And God is saying, if you're going to go with me, then I'm with the people because you've called me with the people. And in a very real sense, Moses is, is pushing this reality. Could it be possible that your people could go with you through me? If your favor is upon me, and you know my name, and I'm their mediator, could they go with you through through me, through my relationship with you? Some of you are seeing the grammar of the gospel, aren't you? Some of you are seeing the fact that right now, just take this in, the heavens are open up to you. That when you sang earlier, your voice didn't just reverberate off of these four walls, that it entered into the heavenly places by virtue of the Spirit and the mediation of Jesus Christ. That when we walk through the confession of sin, and you you confess the sins to the Lord, and you receive the assurance of, of pardon, it's not as if there's this impenetrable wall between the things that happen on earth and the things that are happening in heaven. Jesus stood to make intercession for you at that point. Do you know why your voice is in heaven? Do you know why your position is in heaven? Because you have a mediator. Who has, who God knows his name, in whom God has poured out his favor. Do you remember this at his baptism? This is my beloved son, in whom I am well pleased. Listen to him, he said. That's the grammar of the gospel, is, is right here, isn't it? It's really a marvelous. Intercession, and and you know it must have been a marvelous intercession, at least from this vantage point. Look at verse 17. God responds, this very thing that you have spoken, I will do. For you have found favor in my sight, and I know you by name. Well, wouldn't you expect even, you know, right there, uh, that the Lord now, well, they would just call it quits. I mean, he got what he wanted. Right? He, got, he got everything that he, that he was looking for. I mean, okay, he's going to go with me. He's going to go with us. The mission is back on. Let's build this tabernacle. Let's get to uh, the promised land. But Moses is not done. Moses is on a roll. And he's not about to stop. And in verse 18, we see something we don't expect to happen. We really don't. In verse 18, after the answer of the second petition, Moses says to him, Please show me your glory. Now, Moses has seen the glory of the Lord. I mean, he saw it in the burning bush a long time ago. 
He saw it in the quaking mountain. He saw it as he entered into the glory cloud. He's, he's speaking right now, dwelling in the tent of meeting with that Shekinah glory of the Lord. He has the kind of intimacy that no one in the entirety of the generation in which he lived shared with the Lord. He knows in some real sense the glory of the Lord, but he needs to not just know the Lord. What's he want to know? He wants to really know the Lord. He wants to fully know the Lord. He wants to know the Lord so much that every fiber of his being is swallowed up in the reality of the beloved and what it means to know and be known in the Lord. That's what Moses wants more than anything else. And, then, and the Lord begins to answer him and you're just astonished, aren't you? I will make all my goodness, all of my splendor and majesty, all of my perfections, I will make it pass before you. And I will preach to you, so to speak, a sermon on my name, the Lord. That I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. I'll be merciful to whom I will be merciful. I will sovereignly administer my, my grace. And you're thinking to yourself, the Lord is going to do this. He's going to show him his glory. And, and then, and then we, we hit a ceiling. The Lord says, but you cannot see my face. For no one can see my face and live. And he says, I'll tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to put you right here in this rock. I'm going to hide you in the cleft of it. And as my, my perfections, my goodness passes, passes by, I'm going to put my hand over you. I'm going to shield you. I'm going to protect you from, from me and the revelation of me. And then when I'm past and the outstreamings of my, my glory are trailing off, I'm going to remove my hand only at the point when it's safe. And you'll, you'll see those trailings of my glory. You, you'll see, as, as one commentator put it, you'll see the coattails of my glory. I headed off in the, in the opposite direction. Now, you and I both know that God is a spirit, right? He, he doesn't, in any real technical sense here, have a, have a face like, like you and me is a spirit. You remember this? Children in the children's catechism, right? right? God is a spirit. He does not have body like, like men, right? That's right. That's absolutely true. He's, he's a spirit. He doesn't have a, doesn't have a face. He doesn't, he doesn't have a hand, Right, in the way that, that you're, you're thinking about. He doesn't technically have a back, right? You're going to see my back. <laughs> but he's, he's speaking, right, the, the, fancy, the fancy word. You want the fancy word, right, for this? He's speaking in anthropomorphic language. He's speaking in, in borrowed language, human language, so that we can get some sense of, of, of who he is and, and, and understand him. Just... In, in, as Calvin would put it, in, in baby talk. Do you know every time that the Lord speaks to us, He has to bring it down. Just to bring it, bring it down. The cookies have to be put on the bottom shelf, you understand, in order for us to get any kind of knowledge about who, who God is. He's infinite, we're finite. And, and that's the work here. He, he's describing what He's going to do in, in a picturesque way so that Moses can, can, can grasp it. And, and it's, it's mystery upon mystery, isn't it? I mean, it's just, it just we're, we're awash in it here. And, and we realize that Moses, whatever face-to-face -face meant earlier in the passage, it doesn't mean this. 
The fullness of the unmediated disclosure of God's glory. That's impossible. No one can see me and live. Do you see? Because Moses, even you, though you have found favor in my sight. Moses, even you, though I know you by name. If you come into my glory, I will consume you. That's what he's saying. You're a sinner. Yes, my grace is upon you. Yes, my my favor is with you. Yes, I know you by name. But you, ultimately, Moses, are not the mediator. You understand? This is where your petition hits a ceiling. Do you see? The mediator in this text needs a mediator. He needs someone else who has seen the face of God. In the unmediated glory of His being. All of its weight and splendor and majesty has seen it and has dwelt in it and has not been undone by it. Which is why it's so astonishing, isn't it? That in the New Testament, when we open up John chapter 1 and we read the prologue of John chapter 1, we read these words. The Word became flesh and dwelt among us. What is that word? Tabernacle? He met with us in a tent. His tent is called his flesh. That he dwelt among us and we have seen his glory. We have have seen his glory. Glory as of the only begotten from the Father. Full of grace and truth. We have seen his glory. Here is the mediator. This is the mediator who will see and not die. Who will see with the eyes of men and will stand in the presence of that glory as he has done for you and me today. Living and making intercession for us. Do you see, this is literally the face. I said earlier, right, that God doesn't have a face and some of you went, hmm, there's Jesus. Right? I love it if you did that. There is God in his kindness and in his his glory and in his love for us. He took to himself a human nature. So that he could fulfill what we have failed to fulfill. So that he could pay for all of the record of our sin. So that we would have someone who perfectly represents us in heaven. And then perfectly represents God to us. We needed someone like that. And you see Moses couldn't be that someone. The Lord Jesus Christ is that someone. To see Jesus. Jesus said. Is to see the Father. He is the glory. He is the face of God. Do you see that when we get to heaven, when we come into the new heavens and the new earth, after Jesus returns and we see the consummation of his kingdom, we're told in 1 Corinthians chapter 13 that we will no longer see through a mirror dimly, but we will see him face to face. Do you know that underneath every longing that you have in this life, is a longing to see the face of Jesus Christ. What, what, what good would it do in your life if you knew that in the moment where you're complaining about your, you, know, you need a new car. You, you, need a, you, need a, you need a new house. You need a new, you need a new spouse. Right? right? In, in whatever moments those are, whatever those, what, how helpful, how corrective would it be to know that the longing inside of your heart would never come with a car or a house or a spouse. 
Because the longing that's really down deep inside of your heart, that the whole world is actually chasing, you have the key to, written to you in the Scriptures, you are longing for the face of Jesus Christ. And here's the wonder of it. It is the one thing that you are assured. It's the one thing that you are assured. Everything else in this life, I don't know. But the one thing that you are assured is the one thing that you need. And it's the one thing that you really underneath it all are longing for. And on that day, you will be known. And he will be known by you and by us together. In a way where we will realize this is what we were made for. Until that day, how about we pursue the one that we're made for? How about we seek him out and we, we, we lay it all down. We, we're spent for him. Because one day, we'll find that he spent himself for us. And that all of the inheritance is ours in him. Let's live that way together by his grace. Father in heaven, would you please strengthen us in this uh, such assuring, challenging, mysterious passage. Teach us these truths, not just in this moment. Teach us these truths as we rise and as we walk, as we stand As we move and have our being, would you teach us these truths that we might forever walk in them? We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.